Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have astrophysicist Teal. Teal is a third-year astronomy graduate student at the University of Maryland. They received their BS in physics, astrophysics, at the University of California, Santa Cruz in 2015, worked at the university the following year, and then worked at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center from 2007 to the summer of 2018. Their research has focused on modeling planetary atmospheres and their transmission spectra across planetary masses, radii, and distinct environments. When not waiting for models to run and or working, Teal enjoys crocheting, fermentation, and TTRPGs. Teal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So to begin with, we normally start out by asking people just sort of, how did you get into science? Yeah, so for me, um, it was really a young age that I knew I wanted to do some kind of science or engineering. Bill Nye the Science Guy was definitely an inspiration for me as a child. And really, when I was young, especially before the age of about 10, I would regularly oscillate between what potential fields I might want to go into. And it wasn't until eighth grade that a physical sciences teacher that I had really sparked my interest in astronomy. And I've just been you know, doing my best to follow through with that spark of passion. Well, then how did you get into, broadly speaking, space stuff? I mean, lots of, I, I grew up with sci-fi through my parents. Um, also, I guess natural curiosity really drove me towards it. You know, I think every everyone can look up at the sky and I think everyone has, at least most people in the field have some story about looking up at the sky and something clicking for them. And I certainly had that experience. Although, uh, to be frank, I don't remember it that well. I just remember that I looked up at the sky, there were stars there, and I liked it. I mean, I'm not into space because um, it's very scary up there, but... <laughs> it is. <laughs> I won't judge it's also you. scary down here, <laughs> you know, yeah, everywhere. <laughs> but here we have cats. That, is, that true. is true. But yeah, that is a strong favor argument in favor of Earth. No space cats. As far as we know... <laughs> Yeah, well then, can you tell us more about what you're working on now? At the moment, I'm working on this project where essentially I'm trying to understand uh, what we in the field of exoplanets need when it comes to observations and other ways to be prepared for the James Webb Space Telescope deploying and becoming functional, actually taking observations. And the context in which I'm looking at that specifically, because there are a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things, is I'm looking at how we might be able to utilize the Hubble Space Telescope and how much we actually need as a community to utilize the Hubble Space Telescope for exoplanets moving forward. The angle um, that I'm looking at uses these red dwarf stars. So these stars where it's very favorable to characterize exoplanets around them just because the star is so small. Um, it's not something large like the sun and the difference in light between the planet and the star is uh, less stark. And we need to understand the environment that a star creates for all of the planets that might be orbiting it. A big part of that is the ultraviolet regime of light. So we're used to hearing about that through sunburns, you know, need to wear sunscreen. But for me, what I'm thinking about is how that UV radiation impacts the chemistry, the chemical state of Earth-like atmospheres specifically. And for me, I'm looking at that in two big cases. So one of those cases is a hazy atmosphere, one that has hydrocarbon hazes forming in it. This is like 
an early Earth atmosphere during the Archean era where it was hypothesized that hydrocarbons might be abundant. That is really impacted by the UV radiation. UV is the main pathway that these form. When you talk about hydrocarbons, we're talking about like methane or are we talking about like long chain petroleum molecules? You know, for, for someone who doesn't study a lot of chemistry, you know, like Charles's dad, what does hydrocarbon usually equate to? That's a really good question. So, you know, as you mentioned, these hydrocarbon chains can get really long, really fast. I mean, right, you can you can spend your entire life just studying a handful of them. What we do to model these is uh, we start with methane. That is the genesis of some kind for all the other hydrocarbons in an atmosphere. And then the UV light breaks those down into other other chains, right? Some of these larger molecules. We don't model those uh, these hydrocarbons beyond some reasonable length, right? So for example, uh, ethane is something reasonable to model up to. At some point though, these hydrocarbons are getting sufficiently large and sufficiently complex that it would be, it would take a lot of computational time and energy to actually model them. And so we just pretend that they are all forming the same kind of hydrocarbon roughly, right? I mean, they're all just funky shapes. And then agglomerating, right? So condensing to form larger particles. And those larger particles are what I mean when I'm referring to haze. So basically LA on a really bad air pollution day. Sort of. I mean, LA really goes through its own uh, aerosol process, right? So the smog that we're seeing is actually driven by uh, NOx species are what we call them. They're essentially nitrogen species with some number of oxygens attached to them. And those are emitted by cars, life. Um, can't, it's very difficult to make uh, those abiogenically. Uh, yeah, it's the same exact process, right? It's UV light breaking down these slightly more complex molecules and creating these these different, more, uh, more thick, visible things. That wonderful LA orange haze that forms after morning traffic is a really good example of that. So the hydrocarbons was one of a list of two. Yes. So that, that is our, our most impacted case. That right, The pathways for that are very sensitive to the UV light. But the other case that we use is a much more familiar case. It's our modern Earth atmosphere. So that's accounting for um, you know, surface fluxes, things, chemicals that the surface produces in oceans or biology, et cetera. And then also the top of atmosphere radiation. And here's where we start to see impacts on species that, you know, as we're, we're more familiar with, right? Ozone, for example, is impacted by the amount of UV radiation. That's why ozone protects us from the sun's UV radiation. But you start to see slight differences there. The main difference, though, is that it's not as thick, right? You can, you can see the clear blue skies on a modern Earth atmosphere, whereas it would be that hazy hazy orangish sky for this Archean Earth-like atmosphere. So those are our two main cases. One where we have these very sensitive hydrocarbons that are forming, and this other one where it's looking at a more familiar chemistry on an Earth-like exoplanet. So would the James Webb be able to distinguish between those two atmospheres? So, so that's a really big question right now. Um, most of my work is on the theoretical side, so I don't want to I don't want to say something that might irk an observer. My understanding is that it, 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 I mean, it's going to be the best instrument for characterizing exoplanet atmospheres that we have yet deployed in space, right? This is going to be, I mean, part of its design or part of its science case rather is to observe these uh, exoplanet atmospheres as they orbit these stars and actually characterize them. There are observables there. Um, how easy those are to observe is always a huge question depends on a lot of different factors. 
That said, with the study that I'm doing, this is focusing on stars that are one, known to host exoplanets, and two, have very favorable viewing conditions, right? So actually detecting these exoplanets and actually characterizing them is really, it's something that James Webb is going to be very good at doing. We've had a lot of telescope people on recently. Yeah, well, because you brought all of these space people <laughs> into our lives. <laughs> uh, there's enough space for all of us, don't worry. That is one thing we can say. <laughs> Absolutely. There is an infinite amount of space out there. That is true. <laughs> I cannot refute that. <laughs> that's what always... Well, as, oh, a, sorry, as a, just a, well, just as a, a tangent, I guess, that's what always really twists my noodle about space is that there's there's just so much of it out there and it just keeps I'll, going i'll be honest charles i don't know how other space people deal with it but after a while i just kind of stop thinking about it it just stops making sense to me and i just kind of quietly ignore it because it's just all numbers <laughs> i i definitely do that i mean there's there's some point where it becomes so abstracted in math i mean you know that you just kind of get this sneaky mathematics that describes weird geometry that you know, explain some of this vastness. And I certainly don't comprehend it from the planetary side of life. But yeah, I just kind of, I similarly just sort of ignore it and assume it can be described by an equation or something. So we have actually talked to several different people who work on transmission spectra. Mm -hmm. Including yours truly. Including Tessa. And so I'm trying not to sort of retread old ground because we have talked about like why we use transmission spectra and how we use transmission spectra. I was going to say, with haze, you know, when you're talking about these large particles, do you actually even get transmission spectrum from them? Because I feel like past a certain point, it's just going to be blocking light, period, and you're not going to get those, you know, nice little holes punched in your spectra that you normally do from transparent gases. It's just going to block everything. Your intuition there is 100% correct. So I actually recently did a test. So this was this was, you know, this was just making sure that I hadn't messed up the model. But essentially where I, I took a transmission spectrum that we had, right? So a bunch of lines included everything and then artificially injected haze of a particular radius, right? So of a particular size throughout the atmosphere. And then I made I made a little movie out of it, right? Where you're you're stepping through each frame a different radius of particle. And it goes from being the plain transmission spectrum because your particles are so small that they're not really impacting larger wavelengths than uh, their radius. But once you start getting to much heftier particles on the scale of microns, the transmission spectra gets very flat and then eventually becomes just a flat line, right? Which is fine because this is just an artificial test case. But you really do lose a lot of information because it does block out so much of those those lines that contain this uh, information that we really want. That said, I always take the optimistic perspective, which is that you know if we if we understand enough about the haze, that tells us a lot about the environment uh, of that planet's atmosphere. It can tell us a lot about what's going on inside it. But haze is much harder to characterize than very distinct, crisp lines. So basically, it's one of those cases where even if you get, I guess, a negative result, you can still infer a lot about the atmosphere from that fact. Yeah, exactly. Um, GJ1214b, <laughs> 1214b, it's a planet, um, is uh, a really good example of this. It's, uh, I guess, it's somewhat famous in the in the community and 
I think it was pretty a pretty big result in general um, on a public scale. But essentially, they took one of these transmission spectra of a roughly slightly less than Neptune, I think, sized planet, and the transmission spectra came back very flat. You know, it was a flat transmission spectrum. You weren't seeing these lines. And one of the hypotheses is that it is some kind of aerosol doesn't necessarily have to be a hydrocarbon haze. You can get similar effects with clouds, soot, you know, these different different flavors of aerosols that interact with light in different ways, but still still remove some information. How would you get soot? You can get soot from volcanic activity. So mm-hmm. so thinking about uh, plume plumes of gas coming out, you know, that's you're you're getting a lot of dust that is spewing out of the earth from uh, Right, you're not Hawaiian style volcanoes where it's sort of lava flowing into the ocean, but these really explosive events. If you have enough of that, you can really pump soot into the atmosphere from that. Um, without volcanic activity, I couldn't really tell you. I haven't studied soot that much. <laughs> um, and then just, I guess, I guess to kind of maybe I can uh, riff off of the concept of spectra because, as I mentioned before, one of the parts of my current research is understanding these M dwarfs. And the specific part that I mentioned we want to understand is the UV. And so, one of the questions we have to ask, and what I'm asking, right, is we're preparing for James Webb. We only have one instrument right now that can take really good high resolution spectra of these host stars, right? This UV regime that is really important to understanding interactions with a planet's atmosphere. And once Hubble goes away, which unfortunately it it will eventually, once that goes away, we no longer have it. And so specifically what I'm looking at is how, like, as I said, how do we need to prepare? But once we hit that inevitable roadblock of we don't have a UV spectrum for this star, is it, do we have a way of estimating it that is accurate? And the way that I'm looking at that, right, falls back into this transmission spectrum regime where I'm modeling these atmospheres, modeling their, their hazy, whether they're hazy or modern and seeing what effects those have on the transmission spectra when we know this information about a host star, when we have these Hubble observations, and when we don't have them at all, right? And I pretend that we've never observed a star, and instead I reconstruct them using, using uh, work from the literature, right? Scaling relations, uh, and trying to understand how sufficient those are. Right. So that, that's sort of one of the ways that we're preparing um, from a spectral side of things. Bit of a non sequitur, but. Have we talked about the difference between UV and transmission spectra? Uh, so, so it's really just um, a regime of things. So a transmission spectrum is specifically when we're, when we're taking, taking observations that result in a transmission spectrum, we're watching light go through a planet's atmosphere from the star. So this is necessarily the planet passing in front of the star. We see a dip in light um, at some wavelengths, and then we analyze what those dips in light look like for a variety of different wavelengths. Because as you change the wavelength that you're looking at, the actual atmosphere itself is going to change how it interacts with that. The, a good way to think about this, or a relatively simple model, is think about you know a red lens, right? It is interacting with red light differently than it's interacting with other colors of light, and that's why it looks red. A transmission spectrum is a more complicated version of that, where our atmosphere is a bunch of different stuff all mixed together that interacts with light in its own way. And when we get that transmission spectrum, it's all of that information folded into one, one, one data set. When we're looking at the stellar spectra, when I say UV spectrum, it's just a part of the star's actual spectrum, right? So this is a direct observation of the star. We're looking at 
very similarly, we're looking at what kinds of light are hitting our telescope, what photons are actually being detected. But instead of looking at it through a planet's atmosphere, we're only looking at it from the star directly to us, right? So, so it's when I say UV spectrum and say it's observed, what I mean is just this very specific regime of light that is a part of a star's entire emission spectrum. And then for the planet, we're looking at something where the atmosphere is absorbing light and we can detect that when it passes in front of its star. Does that, mm. does that answer your question? Yes. And it brings okay. up a new one, which is that it, how can you give a very succinct definition of what an atmosphere is? <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I definitely can give a succinct uh, definition. So an atmosphere is, the, the way that I view it, is essentially a layer of gas that surrounds a planet's surface. Surface being, in the case of Earth, right, the, a rocky body. Um, and then for a gas giant, it's usually set at some pressure level where the physics starts to get a little bit different. But think about it as a tenuous gas that surrounds a planet. That is, that is what I think of as an atmosphere. Okay. Well, that was actually a lead-in to a different question, but now I have a new question related to some <laughs> of your phrasing, which is specifically, is there is there like controversy in the field over what exactly an atmosphere is? I mean, I've seen I've seen a few folks that have very strong opinions on it, and I respect those opinions. I think they're very interesting ways of looking at them. I I won't parrot them because I won't do them justice. But um, I wouldn't say it's controversial. I think that you know the the place where it starts to get fuzzy is uh, at least at least in my opinion is when you start to really have these atmospheres that are just rock being blown away, right? So think about a body like like Mercury, but even closer in, where it's so irradiated and so hot that the quote unquote atmosphere that it has is really just this rock vaporizing and being thrown off the surface. Um, whether or not I would say that's an atmosphere, I would have to look at the data and see uh, what the, what what we know about that so far. Another example of that, uh, but on a different scale, is uh, Pluto. So Pluto actually has a very very tenuous atmosphere and has uh, surface winds, um, and it's just like so so interesting to me. But it's very tenuous, and whether or not that is an atmosphere, I mean, for me, the types of atmospheres that I study, I certainly wouldn't observe it as an atmosphere. It's too thin to observe uh, with the methods that we've talked about, especially on such a small body. But it does have an atmosphere in the definition that I gave. <laughs> you know, uh, our definitions are never going to perfectly describe every case. Well, that's also interesting because that is a recurring refrain in biology. Like I'm TAing an evolutionary biology course this semester. And one of the concepts that we've talked about obviously is species concepts and how there's no perfect way to define a species because nature is very complicated and defies easy categorization. Um, and so it's nice to know that both on the scale of biological life and universal phenomena, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. A really, I think maybe a spicier example, which uh, you will definitely get opinions from everyone about. Oh, I love it. Is uh, the, what, what is called the, the super-Earth sub-Neptune regime of exoplanets. And so this is the transition somewhere between an Earth-sized planet and a Neptune-sized planet where you where you go from having you know a rock a, like a very distinct rocky surface to with a you know some heavy molecule dominated atmosphere in our case nitrogen 
to this hydrogen-dominated atmosphere and a much puffier atmosphere with some different equation of state for its interior, right? And so that's not well understood. And even through observations and population studies, um, we're really only beginning to get a handle on, on it, you know, but that, that is a much more contentious thing and something that I really, uh, through continuing with my work, want to look at because it's such an interesting regime of planet that we really are only beginning to understand, I think. Mm, fish in the hot space goss. For <laughs> yes. the, for the space dunces in the audience, by which I mean me and uh, potentially also my dad, could you give us all a refresher on what Neptune is like? Yes. So Neptune is one of our ice giant planets. Um, so just to kind of go through the list, right, we have the inner rocky bodies, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And then we get our two giant planets, our hydrogen giants, Jupiter and Saturn. And then we have these so-called ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. Um, with Neptune specifically, uh, right, it's got this beautiful blue atmosphere that we saw with, with, with the, the Voyager flyby. Um, it has these massive storms going on that, you know, to, to a layperson probably look, at least to me, kind of look like Jupiter's storms. But with a very different atmospheric composition, there's a lot more methane in that atmosphere. It is an ice giant. You get ice, ice forming in that atmosphere, water ice. I think there are other kinds of ice that are forming there, incredibly cold far less irradiated than an Earth or a Jupiter. So atmospheres are a characteristic of planets or planet-like bodies when we're talking about Pluto because of Pluto's whole deal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but is there something comparable around stars? Like, is there a space around a star where the, like, composition of space is different than a little bit further out does that make sense yes um there absolutely is and there's sort of there, i have this really there's this really funny experience that i had at a conference once where i was talking to a stellar astrophysicist but i didn't know it and so we were both talking about atmospheres and uh this person was was mentioning like atoms in the atmosphere right these emission lines and i'm like wow they must be looking at a very strange planetary atmosphere and of course i'm talking about you know uh I think I was talking about Titan at the time. So, so Saturn's moon, moon Titan's atmosphere. And it, was, it wasn't until like five minutes later that we both realized that we, we were just confusing each other because it's, stellar atmospheres do exist. And that's a term that is used. That classic sitcom trope <laughs> of celestial phenomenon crosstalk. Yeah. And stellar atmospheres vary a lot themselves. So for these M dwarf stars, these really tiny, uh, cooler uh, stars, you know, their atmospheres are fundamentally different from something like the sun's atmosphere, which itself is fundamentally different from, you know, giant stars, you know, like blue giants or red giant atmospheres. And that comes in composition, right? So you have these uh, atoms and stuff floating, uh, you know, floating around these stars creating this atmosphere. But for an M dwarf, you might, you know, if it's cool enough, uh, have molecules forming, you know, heavy metal molecules. You know, around these hotter stars, you're going to get more atomic lines, right? You're not going to see as many molecular lines, um, probably. Not a stellar astrophysicist might be wrong, um, right? But they, they vary just as much as uh, planetary atmospheres. And it actually gets a little bit fuzzier when we start talking about uh, brown dwarfs, which are essentially this type of star that is... It doesn't really have a smooth boundary with Jupiter. I think it's agreed upon that it's about 14 Jupiter masses. And then once you get that much mass in one place, in one body, you can fuse what's called deuterium, which is hydrogen with a neutron attached to the proton in its nucleus. And so that is easier to fuse 
at these lower for these lower mass objects. And so we call that a brown dwarf because it's not it's not quite a, a star in the classical sense, but it's also not quite a planet. It does have this fusion going on. And so right, I mean, even the transition between planetary atmospheres and stellar atmospheres has its own story that is being that is being studied. I spent that entire time, I'll be honest with you, trying to think of a way to make a joke out of brown dwarf sounding really unflattering. I'm imagining like a very, really unflattering dresses that certain kinds of conservative Christians make their kids wear. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where like all of these other stars I'm imagining are in like bright sundresses or beautiful jewel tone gowns. And then the poor brown dwarf, you know, is in that like sack dress <laughs> because um, their parents think that if anybody can see their butt, they will get sent to hell. <laughs> I mean, you know, when we're observing them, that's kind of, I mean, right, it's easier to spot someone with a beautiful, flowing, vibrant dress in a oh, crowd. Oh, no. Um, the brown dwarfs are the, the nerds at the party. Yeah, they're, they're a bit of the wallflowers. I mean, we've found, there there are detected free-floating brown dwarfs alongside ones that are in, uh, are companions of other stars, right? So they're they're much harder to detect, though. I mean, they, they're so much cooler, right, that they're not, they're again, they're not as bright as stars. They're not... Uh, they're not shining <laughs> in the same optical regime that we're used to. But underneath those glasses, you know? Exactly. Heart of, um, heart of uh, gold or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heart of deuterium. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so I have two more questions. One is, you mentioned these brown dwarfs being small and or cool enough that molecules could form. Basically, for people who are not as versed in sort of chemistry and how elemental interactions work why is why is that the case uh, it's really it's really just about heat in the end and then also kinetics so uh, to, to to break that down a bit right when i say kinetics that is uh, from my from, from my definition it's just a, a molecule or an atom or an electron whacking another molecule or atom or electron and interacting with it in some way uh, that right, we uh, as particles heat up, they tend to have be more energetic, and so their kinetics become more chaotic. Right, they're moving physically faster, um, and so when we're looking at these cooler brown dwarfs and planets, they're sufficiently cool and not generating enough internal heat um, to break apart these molecules. Right, you can think about it as a a fight between the the radiation from whatever body you're looking at and the molecules themselves trying to hold themselves together. And so it's the idea is is what how strong is the is the bond of this molecule and how strong is the actual radiation from the body itself. Right? So for a star, especially for larger stars, you're getting an incredible amount of radi radiation just from the internal energy of that star from the fusion. Whereas for these brown dwarfs, you know, they're fusing stuff, but it's it's not that much. You know, it's not it's not pumping too much energy into these atmospheres to the point where on brown dwarfs you can have clouds form. The radiation won't break them apart in that scenario. Mm. Whereas we don't necessarily see clouds on, you know, the sun. <laughs> we see we see sunspots, but not clouds as we would think of them, you know. Do the kinds of stars at the heart of various is it a solar system if it's not our sun? Ooh, that is I, <laughs> I I generally will call anything a solar system. Um, I'm very lackadaisical with that phrase. That said, I have I think it's fun occasionally to call it the soul system, 
right? Because the, the star's name is Sol. You know, that's where we get solar system. Uh, but for these other stars, I, you know, you can call them planetary systems. You can call them exoplanetary systems. You can call them, you know, the, for example, I mentioned GJ1214b earlier. GJ1214 is the name of the star. So I could call it the GJ1214 system. Although that sounds like a weird telecommunications company name. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw that start up in Silicon Valley at some point or another. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, I, I will call them solar systems. I will call them uh, planetary systems. You know, it, it depends on my mood that day, how what side of the bed I woke up on. So that, so that actually wasn't my question. My question was, <laughs> so does the kind of star at the heart of whatever you want to call it affect the kinds of planets that can form in that system? Absolutely. And when it comes to the environments that these planets form in, the star is probably the, I would say, the most significant factor in how they form, uh, right? So when you're forming these planetary disks, the things that start to matter are how much mass is being taken up by the host star, right? Are you forming a giant star? Are you forming a, an M-dwarf, which isn't going to take too much mass? How much mass is available in that case? When was this star born? Was it born early in the universe, uh, where you mostly have this hydrogen you know, around, and that's, it's harder, if not impossible, to uh, form planets with that? There's a lot of factors there. One of the most significant ones, in my opinion, has to do with the end of life for these planets, right? So, so what happens... You know, in the context of these stars' lives and, you know, the fact that this is the main power source for whatever planets are around. And for these larger stars, they live significantly shorter lives than, than small stars do. So these M-dwarfs, for example, can live for up to trillions of years. They're incredibly stable. They have plenty, the way that they use their fuel is incredibly efficient, whereas these larger stars will just burn up their fuel incredibly quickly because they're so massive and compressing their cores so much that they don't really live that long, right? And so when we're looking for, say, techno signatures, you don't want to pick the star that's only going to last 100,000 years, you know, 100 million years, 100,000 is a, you need a very big star for that. So then the question, do you in the general sense not necessarily you specifically is there a process in this kind of research at looking at locating different kinds of stars hypothesizing the kind of exoplanets you would expect to see in that system and then specifically directing telescopes etc to those exoplanets and and sort of basing inquiry based on those, you know, assumptions out from the kind of stars that are seen? So I'm on the modeling side, right? So when, whenever we encounter a situation where we think a planet might be around a given star, or if we have just an interesting observation of a special case of a star, what planets might form around that, as you, as you said, that's sort of where I, where I come in there, right? And I say, okay, let's, let's model this. In terms of discovering uh, exoplanets, it really requires these huge surveys, right? We don't, it's difficult to say there's likely a planet here, let's look at this system, than it is to say, okay, here's thousands of systems where we saw a blink of light, and that means there's probably a planet around it, maybe, or there was just a weird sunspot event or star spot event or something. Um, you know, and so that's where the Kepler mission comes in, where TESS comes in, where you have these satellites just staring at patches of the sky, trying to figure out what stars might have exoplanets, alongside answering questions like, 
what kind what are what is the distribution of exoplanets in the galaxy you know what's the likelihood that a star might have a given type of exoplanet but yeah it's it's much it's much more difficult to go the reverse right it's easy to find an exoplanet well it <laughs> It's relatively easy with the techniques that we have and the incredible skill that observers have to detect these exoplanets and make sure that we know they're really planets um, and then model them and then start to hypothesize about what those planets are like than it is to say, here are the conditions where a planet would form around, around the star and here's what kind of formation process it would go through. It's, it's difficult to model something and then see that immediately in nature, mm. right? Instead especially in planetary science where we don't have these examples right next to us. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't do direct field work, unfortunately. We can't take these, these massive data sets, these massive amounts of potential planets, narrow those down, and then strategically model them to understand the most interesting or the most um, canonical cases that we're seeing. Is there kind of a reciprocal relationship between discovery and modeling where like, you are taking all the data from discovery and then putting that into the models and then models being able to give greater context when people do make these discoveries exactly that is that is 100 right i mean you know it's sort of it's a very iterative process where let's say the test discovers a planet around a star and you know we now know like okay we've got an idea of its radius we know you know what kind of star it's around we go back and model it and then we use those models to understand What's the next observation we need to make, right? That that's uh, that's what we're doing with James Webb, where we're saying, okay, like here's our models, right? Beyond what I'm doing, right? Bunch of different models from a bunch of different groups, and then saying what types of wavelength, what wavelength ranges should we look at to un to characterize this thing that the model is predicting to test this hypothesis? Um, you know, so so it is a very iterative process because once we detect that, well, should we get better observations? Should we look at a different regime to under like contextualize it even more? Two questions. Well, actually, first is just a statement. For um, I would just like to say one of the joys of being someone named Tessa in the astrobiology field is that whenever people talk about planet hunting telescopes, I always get slightly confused, but also kind of proud because it's like, oh, TESS was launched into orbit in 2014. And I'm like, yes, yes, I was. Uh, I, I realized that about halfway through that, what I just said. And then I made a point of not like saying, uh, after, or like not pausing and saying, uh, after TESS, that it wasn't too confusing. <laughs> but I, I'm glad that it's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, the other thing is, so of the modeling and you're doing, especially with James Webb coming on mine, hopefully soon, what like finding or discovery would you be most excited to have come out of your research? I think for my research specifically, I really think that if, if, if it gave us a way, you know, via work down the line, via future work based off of my own to really model these UV spectra well, you know, that would be, I think, the best case scenario there. And the only way that we can know that is through James Webb, right? So really with James Webb, the discovery that I want to see is like this incredible characterization of an atmosphere that is completely alien to one that we've seen in the solar system, which frankly is most atmospheres around other stars. So that's a roundabout way of describing a general concept that I would be excited to see. Um, if bland to the general public. Well, then to 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 cap it off, is there anything that you, Teal, 
would like to say about your research or about your discipline that hasn't come up yet? I think maybe it would be good for me to just succinctly describe like the entire concept of my research, just since I I think that I really hit different points at very different stages of us talking. Um, Yeah, we love a summary. Yeah, so essentially, um, my research involves taking real UV observations of these stars putting them into a model of a planet's atmosphere, and then taking a reconstruction of that same wavelength range and putting it into the same model and looking for differences. Once we have that, I want to understand what what those differences mean in the context of observations that we will make with James Webb, and whether or not this will impact how we characterize planets with James Webb when we don't have these UV observations of stars. All right, I think that's the entire elevator pitch. (laughs) Wonderful. Then, yeah, as a final, the final thing that we ask our guests to do. So the final thing we do is that we ask all of our guests to weigh in on one of our recurring themes. I believe I sent you these questions and Mm -hmm. you indicated you would like to answer the second and the fifth. Yes. And so for the purpose of the recording, I will now read the question, even though we all know it. Okay. So assuming you're on the point of total body failure and you have the option either to die outright or to put your brain in a robot body, do you go robot? So for me, the, the immediate answer is uh, I let myself die, 100%. Um, I do not do robot. Um, that is sort of a philosophical thing for me. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, um, you know, uh, th- there's obviously concerns about like what it is, what it means to be in a robot, uh, you know, eth- like philosophically. Um, what kind of experiences are you not going to get in that case, you know? Assuming even the most perfect situation where the robot is an exact replica of me, I think I would still want to, you know, just let nature take its course. I think that, like, you know, getting back to sort of the spiritual side of things, um, for me, right, it's, it's, it's participating in nature. You know, it's participating in the circle of life. And that, that is somewhat important to me. Yeah. Well, related to that, this is not in our list of questions that we said guests, but we did talk about it before. Particularly, we had um, an episode with Caitlin Hobb, who is a bioanthropology recent graduate whose work is in death. And we talked at length about what we want done with our bodies after we die. Um, and I feel like you might have an opinion on that. Ooh. I bet I do. <laughs> well... Um, then opening up the floor, you know. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought I thought there was a following question. No, um, no, no. It was basically just like, what do you? Once you kick it, what do you want people to do with what's left over? Oh man, um, you know, I, I've always had this fantasy of donating it to science, but I think I think that that is. I, I don't know. I, I still have mixed feelings about that. I think the ideal, for me, the ideal that probably won't be realized is sort of. I really like the concept of being um, thrown back at nature. If that that makes sense, I, I think it was Diogenes um, or Diogenes uh, that um, you know said, "Once I die, just throw me out, you know, like in, into the, these woods or into this meadow, and let the you know let me return to um, the soil and to the ecosystem." And I really think that that's kind of my personal ideal. You know, I, I don't mind disappearing in that way right becoming a part of a a new whole kind of related to that 
sometimes people either in complete sincerity or when they're trying to get my goat because they know that I'm a person whose goat can easily be got <laughs> will talk about like if I were to die just randomly in my apartment I have two cats my ideal is to have like five cats I'm getting there um <laughs> And they'll be like, well, if you die, your cat will just eat you. And first of all, they wouldn't. My cat is very picky about food. Um, <laughs> well, one of them is picky. One of them will kind of eat whatever. But so at least one of my cats wouldn't eat my dead body. And then secondly, even if my cats were to eat my dead body, if they're doing that because they are on the point of starvation, basically. And at that point, I love my cats. I don't want them to die of starvation when a perfectly good body that nobody is using anymore is available to them. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean like, you know, you, at that point your meat, your meat suit is no longer activated. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess I agree. Right. If I, if, and when I have animals um, and I, if I, you know, just fall down one day, if they needed to do that, I, w <laughs> I wouldn't hold it against them if I somehow knew that it happened. You know, yeah. I think, and in a way, it's kind of, you know, I'm helping them out one last time, I guess. You know, I, I don't really, I don't mind that. Yeah. And I, you know, I do want to say that there are people whose belief systems place a certain amount of sacrality on the body itself. But mm -hmm. personally, you know, that's, I'm very much in the camp of once I'm not driving it around anymore, I don't really care what happens to the vehicle. Exactly. Yeah, I feel very similarly. And of course, I do respect uh, people. Who, I, th I think that, um, you know, as a species, it's really amazing that we get to control that so much in many cases. Obviously, there are, of course, a bunch of cases, especially recently, where, you know, we've seen tragedy unfold in, in terms of death care. Um, but mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, the ability to have that decision when it's possible is really beautiful. Um, and I think it's such a very individual human thing to think about um, that I think it's impossible for me not to respect it. Yeah. Yeah. Tessa, I think, Tessa, we all came down on the side, really, of composting. Yeah, that's what I seem to recall, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did talk, I did, when I was doing the show notes for that episode, I looked up stuff on the idea of the mushroom suit, and it seems like, until, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's basically like a suit with a bunch of like hyphae already built, where the idea is you get buried and then mushrooms sprout up, and that, the consensus seemed to be like, that was not actually a very great idea, um, so probably you're better off just throwing your body in the woods and seeing what happens. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, not, there's a fun in the chaos of nature. And I think that, you know, um, you're introducing a factor that wouldn't necessarily be in the environment without, without, without you making that conscious decision. And you're already kind of tossing yourself out there. Um, so for me, I guess the composting situation would be more, uh, <laughs> more um organic <laughs> you know than like uh i guess uh, what's it called you know putting spores around me and uh, watching it happen yeah i mean i do love a good mushroom but oh me too yeah <laughs> now i'm really curious what see i don't know we gotta get a mycologist on the show because i just don't my level of mushroom knowledge is basically like i know that fungi have big interconnected like hyphae 
uh, and that mushrooms are the fruiting bodies, basically. Um, and that you should never, if you're not like a master forager, don't go out in the woods and just eat whatever you find. Because more likely than not, you will get messed up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I think you also indicated that you would like to answer a new question that I don't think Tessa knows that I've been sending people. But if humans were to build a settlement on the moon slash Mars, would you want to live there? Yes. And I picked this question because it makes me contradict my first answer. Um, Wonderful. Which is that, you know, if, like, for example, if something like that were to happen and I was alive to see it, wonderful, 100% would do it. You know, once in, once in a lifetime chance, and if it's a permanent move, you know, you got to kind of weigh your options and figure it out. Um, but the, the general response is, yes, I would do it. That said, right, if the caveat was that, you know, I needed to, you know, maybe, maybe I needed to hibernate, but even worse, I had to, you know, um, or worse, depending on your perspective, I had to inhabit this like, you know, robot body, um, you know, become something akin to perseverance or curiosity. Um, I would have a harder time making that decision. You know, part of that is uh, a natural you know, I think that's really cool and I totally want to do it. I would love to have a seismometer that I just was connected to or something like that. Maybe, a, you know, do some mass chromatography or something. Um, that's the, but, that's uh, the dream. That is, that is truly the dream, right? I've yeah. never, I've only worked in labs in like high school and college contexts. And so if I can become a lab, that is, you know, that, yeah. that's a hard offer to uh, Girls give Girls don't like boys. Girls like having organically attached mass spectrometry <laughs> tools. Exactly, right? I mean, that perfectly, I mean, you know, if I were to pick, <laughs> if I were to pick a description of my gender, I think that, um, <laughs> you know, mass spectrometry is probably somewhere in there, even though I don't do it. Um, it's the you know, principle know, of the something thing. Something about it. Yeah, it's really the principle, you know. I don't even know, like, I barely know how they work. And so just being able to do it, you know, with only thinking would be awesome. Um, but I think another part of that, another layer to that is that, you know, in that context, I'm not doing it necessarily for solely purpose, uh, personal reasons. You know, right, if someone came up and said, you know, can you do this, you would be able to benefit humanity doing this, then I would absolutely say yes, you know, mm. um, that would be a much less hard decision to make. If someone were like, this is an exciting opportunity and you could do this. And oh, by the way, like on the side, you could like, you could do this mass spectrometry. Um, it would be a little, it would be a little bit more difficult for me to decide between the two, right? It's how, how much am I contributing doing this? I wouldn't mm -hmm. want it to be a, I don't want to say selfish because I don't think it's inherently selfish, but I wouldn't want it to be, you know, just me deciding I want to do this. You know, it would have to be something where I feel some uh, commitment. This is very humorous to me because my answer is always, yes, like a robot body. And then my justification is like, I want to be put into a giant like mantis robot body uh. and just be a big metal body. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound nice. <laughs> Listen, you know, boys don't like girls. Boys like being giant robot bugs <laughs> is the other half of that. Uh, I yeah well those are both fantastic answers really good <laughs> contributions um teal if if people want to find out more about you and you want them to find out more about you uh where should they look oh gosh um 
I, I am pretty off the grid uh, when it comes to social media. And at the present, my professional site is just testing with ellipses after it. Yeah. Um, so, so don't don't perceive them. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't perceive me. Um, feel free to email. Email is totally fine at my detail at umd.edu email. Um, I would give my cell number, but you know, none of us have had dinner yet, so I can't um, do that in good faith. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> anyone yeah, in the you... audience wants to email me, that's totally okay. Awesome. Um, well, I am on the grid because I can't. <laughs> I have poor self-control. Uh, so I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. I also have poor self-control, and I'm on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. The show is on Twitter at A-S-A-B-Pod, or at our website where we post transcripts and show notes for every episode, asabpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on science and.